So we're in a big Uber series on the end times. And during this, in the last, I think it's 15 weeks now, believe it or not, we've been working on the implications of the tribulation. We've dealt a little bit all the way back in Thursology, oh, what was it, three, four, and five, something like that, on a brief overview of the end times. And we talked about the tribulation, the great tribulation. But um, there are two pack, uh, impact, uh, aspects. So we're working on the implications of the tribulation now. But there's two aspects that bring up enormously important questions about evil. First, the tribulation clearly, if you read through especially chapter 6 through chapter 19 of Revelation, you'll just see that the tribulation really is the culmination of all of the history of evil in the world. It'll be the most intense period of concentrated hatred, slaughter, genocide, and demonic activity in all of history. And the second issue that the, the tribulation brings up is that the scripture makes it clear that some of the calamities that occurred during the tribulation in the second half of the tribulation specifically are direct acts of God. So this has led us to really a pretty extensive mini-series on the problem of evil in general. And two weeks ago we worked on a key concept and it's, it's in your notes. There it is in blue. It can be really difficult to tell the difference between hardship that comes as a direct test from God Hardship that comes from the enemy and hardship that comes from just living in a fallen world. But there's also another thing that happens. Last week we moved specifically into looking into the fact that some people intentionally do evil things that hurt and sometimes in order to hurt others. And here was our application. Here's your first blanks tonight. Our application was this. Amazingly, God can use others' intentional evil to make us better than if we had never experienced the suffering that they inflict. Let me say that again while you're filling it in. God can use others' intentional evil to make us better than if we had never experienced the suffering that they inflict. And we saw this in, remarkably in the, in the life of Joseph. And with that background, it's important to look at the reality of living in a world where so many innocent people are victimized by hatred and abuse and greed and treachery and power. So tonight, we're going to look at three kinds of victims. Three kinds of victims. This is an important issue to deal with because it links so closely to some of the questions that we've been dealing with in this series. We've been looking at questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? And how do we reconcile the fact that God is loving and all-powerful, and yet there's so much suffering that occurs in the lives of innocent people? So tonight, we're going to look at the issue of people who are, or at least consider themselves, to be victims. In our day, it's difficult to access almost any news source without hearing about individuals or groups of people who, who are called victims. And there's no question that there are many aspects of our fallen world and our culture that lead to unfair treatment of all kinds of people. But in this setting, it can be easy to use the terminology of victimhood, that terminology, for almost everyone. It's easy for nearly all of us to believe that we're a victim of some kind. In fact, you can find associations to join to basically reinforce your sense of victimhood. In fact, you can even see this among people who themselves have been guilty of hurting others. It's amazing to watch people in power who have had their wrongdoing exposed, 
who will use the language of victimhood about themselves. Even when they have intentionally harmed others and get found out, they can say things like, people are conspiring against me, or I've been set up, or this is just a false narrative. I love this one. A false narrative that's motivated by partisan politics. You see this when people are exposed for their clear, absolutely clear um, wrongdoing. Uh, they start throwing this stuff out as if they, the perpetrator, are the victim. And even when unequivocal evidence shows that they were misusing their power or misusing money or cheating or lying, they give all kinds of reasons why they are actually a victim. And so tonight, we're going to look into Scripture and see three kinds of people who are, or at least think, they are victims. Person number one, here's our first blank. I'll write these in for us. Person number one is the person who plays the role, plays the role of the victim. Person number one, the person who plays the role of the victim. And the biblical figure here is, how can it not be, is King Saul. Write it in, King Saul, S-A-U-L. Now, the life of King Saul, as you know, we've intermittently been in Saul's life for all kinds of issues, but his life makes so many important points that we could do an entire series just based upon Saul and his initial greatness and then his incredible fall. But for tonight, we're going to focus on just one aspect of King Saul's life. We pick up the story, and you can be turning to 1, Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's about 20% uh, into your into your Bible. Um, uh, and uh, he has, Saul has directly rebelled against God's command by taking the spoil from Israel's victory over the Amalekites. And the Lord spoke to Samuel the prophet about what has happened and what God is going to do. So look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 15, pick up in the new paragraph there, verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Notice how brokenhearted he is at what the king has done. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet <clears throat> Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, Behold, he set up a monument for himself. That's pretty remarkable to think about. That the whole series there on, on its own. Then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, listen to what Saul says. Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Drop down to verse 16, the last uh, uh, sentence in that paragraph. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission, and he said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, this is quite remarkable, 
I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission which the Lord sent me on. Now we look at me with me at verse 26. Verse 26. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. At this point, of course, uh, uh, it, we know, it, we know it's, it's going to be David. Um, but from this point on, really remarkable. Saul has two perspectives that control everything in his life. You ready? Here's your blanks. His perspective of the past, from this point on, the kingdom's going to be torn from him now. So his perspective of the past, here's, his, here's your blanks. He lost his kingdom because he was ripped off and it's someone else's fault. You'll see that actually pervade the story. And second, his perspective on the future. Here's your blanks. For the rest of his life, Saul believes he's a victim and the whole world is involved in a conspiracy against him. His whole perspective on the future, for the rest of his life, Saul believes he's a victim and the whole world is involved in a conspiracy against him. This is what he believes about David and about his son, Jonathan, and even about the Hebrew priests. Look at his perspective when he finds out that the priests at Nob have given David provisions when he came to them. They, they didn't know anything that was going on. David comes through, Saul's trying to kill him, chasing him down. They give him provisions and he and his, and his uh, soldiers uh, move on. Um, and so Saul's enraged at these priests for doing that. And listen to the bizarre conspiracy-filled delusion that Saul has when he talks about what's going on to, uh, with the priests. For you have all, it's, this is in your notes here, for you have all conspired against me so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. Notice he's so angry even at Jonathan and he's already trying to kill him. And there is none of you who is sorry for me. Did you get that? There is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Look again at Saul's perspective on the future. For the rest of his life, Saul believes he's a victim and the whole world is involved in a conspiracy against him. And this mean, means that Saul suffers the delusions of victimhood. Notice here the delusions of victimhood, delusion number one, everyone conspires against me. Delusion number one, everyone conspires against me. And delusion number two, no one feels sorry for me. His exact words. Look at this, nobody feels sorry for me. Now I want us to stop and think about what happened since Paul began to think of himself as a victim. Look at the result of the delusions of victimhood. Notice we've looked at the two delusions. Now look at the result of the delusions of victimhood. Here's your blanks. The victim's life is driven by feeling sorry for themselves. I'm amazed at the number of people who live the role of a victim. As the director of the emergency department at the university, 
I had nearly 200 uh, employees as a, as a part of my, for six years in my, my career, I was actually the director of the, uh, of the University Medical Center uh, there of, in the emergency department and the trauma center. Um, so I dealt with all kind. I had 200 employees, dealt with all of the appeals that came through with employee disciplines. I didn't have to deal with the regular standard disciplines, but all the appeals finally came to me. What was amazing was the number of appeals that occurred, even when the disciplinary action was in response to something that was literally objectively unarguable. For example, failure to show up to work without calling in. Recurrent tardiness. And there was a time clock there. It was really straightforward. Followed the atomic clock. You clocked in. You clocked out. And um, things like allowing their necessary, their mandatory for their job uh, certifications or licenses to expire. Just boom. It, you know, all of a sudden you find out their license is expired and here they are practicing. Um, so um, we're talking really straightforward stuff. And the most amazing thing was that the deficiencies could happen over and over and yet it was always someone else's fault. It was their supervisor's fault or it was the time clock's fault or it was the scheduler's fault. It was as if there was a worldwide conspiracy to make them look responsible for things that they believed were completely out of their control. It was mystifying. And by the way, the tragedy for these people was they went from job to job to job being fired over and over again. Another example of this is the issue of debt. I'm amazed at the number of people who are in debt by their own choices and yet they blame someone else. Did you know that you can buy furniture right now on payment plan that allows you to make no payments for, are you ready for this, for four years? You can have it now, but you don't have to make any payments for four years. Just let that sink in for a minute. We're so greedy that we want our stuff now. And that says, it's as if in four years, all of our desires will be satisfied. And we, when we start having to pay on this furniture, which by then, by the way, will almost be ready to need to be replaced again, we don't think that there will be anything else that we want to buy. It's the strangest blind spot. But notice what many people do. They make purchases that they can't afford, but then they complain that they're living with insurmountable debt. Dana and I watched this in the arena of housing when we moved to the Phoenix area in 2003. After we bought our house, there was a big housing boom, 2004 through 2007. Just amazing things happened. And during that time, we saw the value of the homes in our area double. So Dana and I, our response was, we just saw this as an amazing blessing of God. We did nothing to deserve this. We literally just sat where we were, and this happened around us. It was just a blessing. And, and the increased value of our home came all from God's providence. So... What was interesting was many of our neighbors heard from various lenders that they could borrow on the massive increase in the equity of their home and get several hundred thousand dollars in cash. And some of them did. So many of them refinanced and they went out and guess what they bought? They bought furniture and new cars. One of them bought a really nice boat. They bought toys. They bought RVs. By the way, those are all rapidly depreciating value, of course. But then the market crashed in 2008. And what this meant was that they had stuff that was worth pennies on the dollar compared to when they had paid for it. And instead of having a approximately $1,300 a month mortgage, 
they now had a $3,000 a month mortgage and they couldn't afford it because the economy had gone in the tank. But then an amazing thing happened. Instead of them realizing the huge error that they had made, they started blaming the banks and the lenders. So they were calling their senators and asking them to, to pass laws against the horrible institutions that had done this to them. After all, it wasn't their fault. It wasn't their error. It wasn't their greed. They were, they were, are you ready? They were victims. Now let me point out that there's no question, no question that there were many unscrupulous lenders that had offered predatory loans, especially because of some of the legal loopholes they could get through back in then. And they had approved mortgages that the bankers knew many people would never be able to pay back. They knew when they were signing it, they were helping to ruin these people's lives. And this greedy financial abuse deserved to be identified and punished. No question about that. So I'm not getting the, letting the banks and the lenders off the hook. But here's the thing. For the individuals who got the loans, no one made them borrow the money. They made those decisions themselves. But for those in our neighborhood who cashed in on the massive increase in their home equity, if they simply had recognized the appreciation of the value of their home was an undeserved blessing of God, they would have had all kinds of financial freedom. Yeah, their value of their home really was much greater. And that could have created all kinds of potential opportunity in the future. But instead, they took the loan, they spent the money, they bought the stuff, and then they looked for someone to blame. So these are just a couple of examples of how people can see themselves as victims when they're really just reaping the consequences of their own bad choices. And this is a perfect description of what went wrong in King Saul's life. He thought that he was a victim, but he wasn't. And his delusions about himself ultimately led to his own destruction. If you watch what happens, it's a really sad story. So we're talking about three kinds of victims. The first kind, the person who plays the role of the innocent victim. And now comes person number two, ready? Whoa, person number two is the mostly, we've already had the one who plays the role of victim. Now we have the mostly innocent victim. Person number two is the mostly innocent victim. And here the biblical figure is Joseph. We just spent, we're not going to cover a lot. We just spent a lot of time on him last week, but he is really perfect here. Remember, we talked extensively, um, and, and just in a quick review, we went through the details of his life, and we saw that he definitely was mistreated by his treacherous brothers, no question. And he was falsely accused of attempting to rape Potiphar's wife. That was a lie. It was a setup. It was wrong. So he was sold as a slave and imprisoned on false charges. But we also found out that he wasn't a completely innocent victim. That's right, Joseph had some issues. And here's what we found. If you haven't seen uh, number uh, 68 from last week, go back. His life and its turnaround is, is remarkable. Number one, Joseph was a tattletale. Number two, while it wasn't Joseph's fault that his father loved him more than his brothers, he obviously played the part of the favorite child very well. Number three, Joseph 
didn't know how to keep his mouth shut. And number four, Joseph clearly had an ego problem. But despite all of the unfairness that he faced and despite his personal issues, Joseph allowed the hardships to shape him into an incredible person. And that's why we could end the story and he could end his story with this incredible testimony. Despite all that his brothers had done to him, he could stand before those brothers, those treacherous brothers, and he could say, you meant what you did for evil, but God meant it for good. And so the great news about those who have been unfairly treated and victimized is that God can use the painful circumstances of life to shape them into people with amazing stories who can help impact the world for good. That doesn't mean that the victimizers, in this case, the treacherous brothers, weren't in the wrong and weren't sinning and don't need their due, all coming from the Lord. That doesn't mean any of that, but it means that God can amazingly turn it around. So first, there's the person who plays the role of the innocent victim. Second, there's the person who's the mostly innocent victim. And now comes person number three. Ready? Person number three is the truly, the truly innocent victim. Person number three, the truly innocent victim. And this biblical figure, uh, there's, I mean, there could, be, could have been many of these, but notice, um, many of us deserve, as we set this figure up, deserve that, uh, at least some of the things that have happened to us, or we're at least partially responsible for our tough situation. However, there are some people who are absolutely innocent with respect to their mistreatment and their hardship. There are, in fact, true victims. And to highlight this issue, I'd like to turn to an obscure but remarkable person. Write it in. Here's the biblical figure. It's Naaman's servant. Naaman's servant. And you're in 2 Samuel, so turn to the right three books to, uh, excuse me, you're in 1 Samuel, turn three books to 2 Kings. So the kings come right after the Samuel. 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. And let's start with verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 5. Look at this. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master. So the Arameans are enemies of Israel. Um, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. God here is one of those places where he's using the Arameans to punish Israel for their sins. God's using the sins of those people to help discipline the people, his, his own people. Notice the man was a valiant warrior, but, very interesting, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. So this little girl, think about this. This little girl is kidnapped. She's kidnapped by a bunch of warring hooligans and brought to Aram to be the servants of the wife of the captain of the army. That's what she's now going to do. She's, she's going to serve in the household of Naaman's wife. I don't know about you, but for me, nothing even close to this bad has ever happened. This is horrendous. And when I read the passage, the first thing that crosses my mind is, who's going to come rescue her and beat the pulp out of this really big bully, Naaman? He takes this little girl 
and gives, gives her to her, his wife so that she can take care of his wife. But watch this young girl's incredible response to her evil captor. This is remarkable. Look with me at verse 3. And she said to the, to the, to the, the uh, mistress, I wish, so this is the little girl talking to now her mistress, right? I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, talking of Elisha now. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. This is incredible. So look now at verse 4. Let's go on. And Naaman went and told his master, saying, meaning the king of Aram, Thus, and, uh, thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten raiments of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you. So this is king to king through the letter, king of Aram to king of Israel, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to do or to make, uh, to kill or to make alive that this man is sending a word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. So he was made whole. Uh, that's, the, that's the plan. He's say, saying, this is how you'll be made whole. So the little girl's faith has provided the opportunity for her captor to be healed. But now he shows that he's not just a kidnapper and a child abductor, but he's also faithless and ungrateful, and he even has anger issues. Look now at verse 11. But Naaman's, Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out and stand and call the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper, right? He was expecting like the Merlin thing where you do this and all of a sudden he's whole. That's the, that's the magic that he was expecting. Verse 12, and are not uh, Abinah and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? But how much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Look at this. Healed made completely back to as if he has beautiful, childlike skin. But the story gets even better for Naaman. Look at verse 15, the next paragraph. When he returned to the man of God with all his company, he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but the God of Israel. So please 
take a present from your servant now. But he said, he, Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. <clears throat> and Naaman said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules of load of the earth, for your servant will no more burnt, do no more burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Notice he's been so transformed that he's, he's fleeing his idolatry and he's only going to worship the Lord. But look at this, because he's the king's captain. Remember, he's going to have to go back. So he, he explains something to Elisha. He says this, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes to the house of Rimmon, that's the false god of the Arameans, to worship there, he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. In other words, he's saying, I got to go back to my job of being a captain and this pagan king, and I no longer follow the pagan gods. I follow the God of Israel and no other God, but I'm going to still have to help him and I'll still have to kneel as he kneels next to me. So please pardon me. Verse 19, and Elisha said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. Notice this. Not only was he healed of his leprosy, he was also saved from his idolatry and given the gift of salvation by the one true God, the God of Israel. Through these events, he came to know Yahweh. But there's something totally missing from the story. There's no hint that he ever thanked the little girl, and there's no evidence that he freed her or restored the little servant girl to her family. This little girl showed an incredibly high level of purity of heart and faith in God. But it went far beyond just forgiving her captor. She actually came to the point that she desired welfare and wholeness to come to the one who had caused all this suffering in her life. She trusted God so completely that she desired God's blessing on the very person who was perpetrating evil against her. So here's the servant girl's testimony. Here it is, write it in. She came, <coughs> she came to the point of such complete trust in God that not even unfair hardship kept her from being redemptive, even in the lives of her enemies. Read that, that you just filled in. She came to the point of such complete trust in God that not even unfair hardship kept her from being redemptive, even in the life of her enemies. And think about where this story comes in biblical history. This event occurred more than 800 years before the New Testament era. And yet, this little girl provides an incredible picture of Jesus. You can almost hear her saying, think of it. You can almost hear her saying, Father, forgive Naaman, for he knows not what he's doing. She simply trusted in her God and in his ability to save Centuries later, Jesus would teach what this little girl seemed to already know. Listen to the text from Matthew 5. Just listen to it. In fact, close your eyes if you need to. I, I haven't put the text in there for you because I just want you to hear it. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, meaning the worst of all sinners, do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? Now, I do want to tag up for a minute. I want to be very careful with this teaching. If improperly taught, this could be distorted into a concept that's self-destructive and even pathological. And there's no, no description of Naaman's behavior that can be anything other than wicked. What he did to the little girl was evil. It was wicked. His evil was profound. He misused his power against the most vulnerable, vulnerable person possible, a little girl. And as you try to apply this in our day, make sure that you don't hear that this kind of faith in God requires you to remain in an abusive situation when you have the ability to get out of it. But notice, in the society this girl was in, she had absolutely no recourse. She was now Naaman's servant, and there was nothing that she could do about it. So she simply, given that reality... She simply trusted her God to take care of things that she had no power over. She released her future to the Lord. She placed herself in the hands of the Father despite her horrible situation. She came to the point where she could even be, think of it, she could be an Old Testament picture of Jesus who would come. 800 years in advance, this girl already understood the gospel in a way that few of us seemed to understand. She didn't just know the concept of the gospel. She lived the concepts of the gospel. Her life was an incredible example of what Jesus would come to teach. Remember, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this gives us a key concept. Ready? Write it in. Key concept, our response to our enemies can either make us bitter or they can make us like Jesus. Our response to our enemies can either make us bitter or it can make us like Jesus. So now let's turn to our application. There's a difference between thinking you're a victim. Here's your blanks. There's a difference between thinking you're a victim and actually being one. As we begin this application, it's important to point out that every person, all of us, have been mistreated. That's absolutely, un I'm sure every single person who is watching this has been, at least at some point, mistreated. And so, in at least some intermittent situations, everyone could say that they're a victim. And in that sense, in that specific situation, that would be a, a, a proper use of the term, technically. But tonight, we're talking about major, potentially life-altering events, not just annoyances and minor hardships. So as we consider the three biblical characters that we studied tonight, Saul, Joseph, and the servant girl, it's really important to notice something. I'll point this out with two key concepts. Pay attention. Look at this. Key concept number one. Write it in. Among these three biblical figures, the only one who actually thought they were a victim was, you ready? Saul. Key concept number one, let me say it again. Among these three biblical figures, the only one who actually thought they were a victim was Saul. Key concept number two, the one who thought he was a victim wasn't. Number two, the only one who thought he was a victim wasn't. Notice this. The only one whose problems were completely self-inflicted, the only one who wasn't a victim 
at all was the one who constantly ruminated about un how unfairly he had been treated and how everyone was involved in a grand conspiracy against him. And this was the case despite the fact that Saul was getting exactly what he deserved. But look at the contrast. Joseph and the servant girl didn't consider themselves victims. They didn't think like victims. They didn't act like victims, even though they actually were victims. And this should be instructive for every one of us. It's a lesson from the real victims. You ready for your blanks? Here they are. Even though victimhood is real, it's real. It was real. Joseph was. The little girl was completely innocent. She was. Even though, here's your blank, even though victimhood is real, considering oneself a victim isn't helpful. Read that again now that you've filled it in. The lesson from the real victims. Even though victimhood is real, considering oneself a victim isn't helpful. In fact, viewing yourself as a victim always has its own problems. Here they are. Ready? The problems associated with taking on, taking on victimhood. Ready? Problem number one. <laughs> Saul shows us problem number one. It's often not true. <laughs> Think about it. You think you're a victim, but you actually aren't. That's Saul. And here's the complication associated with problem number one. Remember, problem number one with taking on victimhood is it's not even true. Here's the complication with problem associated with that problem. Ready? Here's your blank. You miss what you need to learn from the consequences of your decisions, actions, and attitudes. You miss what you need to learn from the consequences of your decisions, actions, and attitudes. If Saul had learned, he could have saved his kingdom, but he didn't. It was always someone else's fault. So thinking you're a victim when you really aren't will keep you in an endless cycle of failing to face really important issues about yourself. I think back to those, those employees that it was just so objective and it was always someone else's fault. And so they're getting fired from another place and then they're going to go on to the next place where they're going to get fired again because they weren't taking responsibility and, and learning from the consequences. And, and as long as that continues to happen, these kind of people create their own pain and hardship. They never get out of the vicious, self-defeating cycle. This is because acknowledging this, acknowledging this gets you out of the loop. But if you fail, if you never acknowledge your responsibility, you'll be trapped in a cycle of self-defeat. So problem number one related to victimhood, ready? It's that you think you're a victim, but you aren't. And here's problem number two. Here's your blank. Write it in. Even if it's true, okay, ready? Even if you're a true victim, even if it's true, here's your blanks. Having the self-understanding of victimhood doesn't help you to have victory over what happened. Let me say that again. Even if it's true, having the self-understanding of victimhood, defining yourself that way, having the self-understanding of victimhood doesn't help you have victory over what happened. This is really important. If you live as a victim, you'll either be deceived like Saul was because you aren't actually one, or if you are a real victim, but you live as one, if you take on the persona of a victim, you'll miss the power that comes from victory over what happened to you. If you're a true victim, 
then dwelling on it will only keep you from overcoming it. You can't change the past, but you know what you can change? You can change the power that the past has over you. So think about this. Viewing yourself as a victim is a lose-lose way of life. Let me say that again. Viewing yourself as a victim is a lose-lose way of life. It doesn't help true victims, and it doesn't help people who just think they're victims. The bottom line is, viewing yourself as a victim is harmful whether you really are one or or you just think you are one. And this gives us three key concepts. Here they are. Here's your blanks. Key concept number one. Ready? Whether you're a true victim or not, if victimhood becomes your identity, this is so important. If victimhood becomes your identity, it will define and control your life. Let me say that again. Whether you're a victim or not, if victimhood becomes your identity, it will define and control your life. And key concept number two, you must break the bondage of victimhood. You must break the bondage of victimhood by not being a victim, but refusing, but by refusing to be a victim. Let me say that again. You must break the bondage of victim, not by being a victim, but by refusing to be a victim. And the greatest biblical support for this comes directly out of the life of Jesus. Are you ready for it? This key concept, you can just see it flow now right out of Jesus' life. Ready? The only perfect, here's your blank, key concept number three, the only perfect victim in all of history, right? The only truly perfect, sinless, spotless victim. The only perfect victim in all of history didn't consider himself a victim. Notice how clearly Jesus established this fact. Let me give you the scriptural text that back that up. When he talked about going to the cross and laying down his life, look what he said. It's, uh, the text is in your, in your notes for, uh, for ease here. Look at from John 10. Jesus, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because, ready? I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one, isn't this powerful? No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. Isn't that remarkable? He was going to be falsely accused and falsely executed in the most horrendous murder in all of human history. And yet he's saying, I lay my life down. I'm the one with the authority to be who I am. It will not define me. Jesus made this point even more poignantly when he was being sentenced to death by Pilate. So here he is in court at the sentencing. Notice the text. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you? So Pilate, thinking like everybody else who grovels before his judgment seat, thinks Jesus is going to grovel and say, oh, no, no, please, please let me go. Look at this. <laughs> I have, do you not know that I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. What a mind-blowing statement. Think about this. Jesus wasn't Pilate's 
victim. Listen to his clarity on this matter. Pilate, you have no power except that which has been given to you by my father. So now let's take a big step back. If you believe you've been victimized, let's assume for the moment that it's actually true. Maybe you're even like the servant girl. You've been completely innocent and you've really been badly hurt. But now, here's the painful truth that you have to come to grips with. If you're ever going to be free from what happened to you, whether it was real or merely perceived, you have to come to grips with the fact that you must move on from whatever happened. And the only way to truly move on is to find your hope in the one who was the true victim, but who never allowed himself to be a victim. When they came to victimize him, he said, I lay my life down. No one can take it from me. And you have no authority. Mr. Pilate, the prelate, the governor, with all this power, who with a word could have him executed, he said, you don't have that authority unless the Father gave it to you. So, why is picking up our cross, taking that concept of Jesus of the cross, why is picking up our cross so central to being delivered from the bondage of victimhood? See the question there in your notes? These are your last blanks. Why is picking up our cross so central to being delivered from the bondage of victimhood? Because, here's your blank, because there can be no resurrection unless first there's a death. Let me explain what I mean. If you truly want to live, then your past, your present, and your future, you ready? They have to die. You being at the center of your world has to die. And even the wrong things that were done against you have to die. Remember? The miracle of a resurrection only comes on the other side of a death. That victimhood dying, the past dying, the present dying, and, and taking up that amazing Galatians chapter 2 uh, testimony of Paul. I am crucified with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. I lay my life down willingly. I'm crucified with Christ. And it's now no longer I who live. My self-centeredness has died. I put the past and everything else in his complete control. And so I'm crucified with Christ and now it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He took authority. He died to himself and he was truly free. So as we close, let's review. Everyone will be some kind of victim. Think about it. Everyone will be some kind of victim. Either a false one, like Saul, or a nearly innocent one, like Joseph, or a truly innocent one, like the little servant girl. We have little control of many of the things that happen to us. The only control we have is this. We have the control of our response to the things that happen to us. So tonight, I'd like you to take the time to stop and think how you've responded to the bad things that have been done to you. 
And as you think about the remarkable Christ-like servant girl that we studied, ask the Holy Spirit right now to reveal to you how you need to move on. I'm not talking about not setting appropriate boundaries. Remember the provisos I gave all through this. Don't stay in an abusive relationship. It, call the police. That's what, that's what you need and that's what they need. Don't stay in an abusive relationship. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, so I'm not talking about not setting appropriate boundaries. I'm not talking about staying in abusive relationships. But with a host of other things that might have happened or might be happening right now in your life, you just have to lay them down. You must give them to the Lord. You have to leave them behind. And as you die to what happened to you, yes, it feels like a death. It is. As you die to what happened to you, you'll be in the position for the Lord to take that horrible memory, that horrible event, that horrible abuse, that horrible treachery, or whatever it is that's back there. And he will take it and raise you to new life through the power of the resurrection. Because, never forget, everyone who dies in Christ will be raised to new life. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us right now if we will simply trust God. So tonight, can you take these past events, these sources of pain, and lay them before the Lord so that the healing and forgiveness can begin to occur in your life? Allow the Lord to have control of the people who hurt you. Allow the Lord to have control of the events that happened. Give everything to him, and then as you die to your past, die to your present, die to your future, die to being the center, die to being a victim, as you do that, let him raise you to new life.